Welcome to Inside Content, the podcast by 3Vision, giving you VIP access to the views and experiences of senior TV executive. Today, Ted Sholowitz, futurist from Paramount Pictures, catches up with our director, Hayley Bull. My job is to focus on future platforms and future use cases and all these things that we talk about. You have to learn from where we are today to know where you're going to go tomorrow. And you have to be able to be sort of respectful, but also challenging. They discuss video entertainment in connected vehicles, producing content for D2C services, the future for cinemas, and looking beyond Paramount+. Plus. Ted, welcome to Inside Content. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, How Haley. are you? Uh, I'm good. It's morning here in Los Angeles, and uh, I've actually already done one podcast today, so this is my second of the day, so uh, it's thrilled to be here. Very productive morning then, Ted. Now, you have a rather unique role in our industry. Could you tell our listeners about what being a futurist involves? Sure, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's kind of an odd job. I'm sort of an odd duck uh, in the world of media and entertainment. Uh, I came from the world of of innovation. I was I was a production guy early in my in my career, and then I migrated into sort of the building technology tools for people in the creative industries, and had some some success with that in various ways. Um, and um, then um, about I guess it's probably going on eight or nine years now ago, um, I got asked by a very close friend of mine once I retired from this movie camera company that I was um, working at. Um, to like help them start to figure out the future of entertainment. And they thought it would be fun and kitschy to call me a futurist because wouldn't that be fun? Uh, and that's really how it started. Uh, and so I did it at 20th Century Fox for a number of years. And then I migrated over to Paramount and now the, the larger Viacom CBS. Uh, and I've been doing that for a few years. Um, and it's been a really interesting role. Uh, and I do have to often explain to people what I do for a living because it's strange and odd. Uh, and more than anything, I explain to people that I'm uh, an explorer in, in many ways. And I um, look at things and possibilities of the trajectory of entertainment and technology. And essentially my job is to find what might be new and intriguing and at some point really beneficial to our very large media organization. Um, so that's my daily pursuit. So as you might imagine, I'm using and experimenting with all kinds of different technology um, that relates to like virtual reality and mixed reality and just things that are, that are new and on the cusp. Uh, and I, I often like to joke that uh, a, a good job description for me, uh, because I'm just constantly exploring and looking at new things, would be I'm a professional frog kisser, meaning you have to kiss a lot of frogs to get to your prince or your princess, right? Which is why there are so many startups that are involved in my life in various ways and connected in various ways uh, that are meaningful and valuable in, in certain perspectives. Um, but most of them will never see the light of day, right? And you have to sort of have a very healthy, comfortable relationship with the fact that part of finding success means grasping and understanding what failure and sort of never getting to the end game means. So it's a challenging job in, in a lot of ways. And you have to have the kind of right personality to always be optimistic and positive about new things when uh, press and pundits and folks are always talking about like, why, why would you care about this? And like, well, someone's got to care about it, you know, and, and, and it's my job to look well past the next couple of years. Like I, I look on a trajectory that is probably 
arguably around 10 years away is, is kind of where I'm always sort of, that's my North star is these days. It's kind of what is 2030 ish look like, not what is 2022 or 2023 look like. So it sounds like a big part of what you do is predicting how consumers will engage with content 10 years from now and, and what that means for the creation of content. What are the big trends yes. we should be looking out for in 2030 and beyond? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a very broad question, right? Um, and, and I think you're right. And, and earlier today, I was discussing about um, how when you try and force the hand of technology and try and convince people that this is going to be the next big thing, uh, you're often on the wrong side of history. When you allow things to evolve within their own ecosystem and their own sort of flavor of goodness where people sort of come to it in their own way and kind of lock in on various parts of what their journey with new technology will be, you're typically on the right side of history. Um, so I guess my, my take on it is less trying to be so predictive about, well, this is gonna be big and this is gonna be meaningful and more about if you just explore the ecosystem with an open mind and understand that humans take a long time to get to a certain place of change, much longer than people in these various industries would like to admit, um, you, you kind of just let things sort of happen. And when they find their moments, you can sort of track back and go, yes, I was paying attention to this and I kind of thought this. So like through this whole beginnings of this like renaissance of virtual reality, which started like around 2013, 2014. And then when Oculus got bought by Facebook by a very huge sum of money, and there was like all this attention around it. Um, everybody was like, well, in the next 18 months, the whole world's going to change and everybody's going to have one of these and everything's going to change. And I was one of those guys going, not exactly. Like this takes a long time to kind of find its sweet spot. And, and it's just starting to find its various sweet spot now in some unusual ways that are, that are not all that expected. I would love to pick up with you on virtual and augmented reality. Um, over the years, we've mm -hmm. seen the industry try and fail to adopt new technologies. 3D has been seen by many as a failure, specifically in the home. So what do you see as the future for AR and VR? Are we hitting a point where it's going to take off? We have seen it being used over the last year to draw people together and break down the disconnect the pandemic has created. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, um, in, in correlation to the pandemic, which shouldn't be made light of in any way, shape or form, it's been a very, very difficult time for many, many people across the globe and will continue to be for some time. And we're going to struggle with it in, in various ways. Um, what has happened within the world of technology is we have entered yet another stage of human comfort with virtualization of goods and services, um, which was already obviously happening at a massive scale and the largest tech companies in the world, um, interestingly enough, did not shrink or um, go into any kind of hibernation mode in this last year, they essentially exploded with growth because you put a forcing agent on the entire world of commerce and entertainment and asked it, demanded it to live in a safe place uh, that was um, not you know, out in public and not in groups. And luckily there have been technologists working for many generations on allowing this to happen. 
with better, bigger displays in the home, more sophisticated compute engines, more sophisticated software packages like we're using right now to be able to talk. And, and you know, everybody's gotten very, very comfortable with the idea of virtualization. I'm one of those guys that was sort of already doing this before. So like at the beginning of the pandemic, um, some of the, the, the press folks from Viacom CBS wanted a like a, a positive kind of uh, optimistic view of like some of what's going on here and is there any sort of silver linings we can look at and of course there are tons of silver linings that we can look at right again not to belittle or 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 lower the intensity of how dangerous and 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 difficult and and in some cases tragic many cases tragic it has been but you know looking at things in some sort of positive light what can you take away from this that has helped us and you know there are really obvious things like think about the the people that had to commute to a job to essentially just sit in front of a computer terminal all day and they don't have to do that anymore right think about all the people that um have found comfort in being with their family a little more as opposed to being away from their family like i'm one that traveled a lot and still love to travel but this year was certainly not no travel, but a lot less travel um, and, and very safe, protected travel. Um, and that was a, a, an interesting change, right? And media and entertainment has essentially followed along with that. We need to give more offerings, more flexible offerings, um, and we need to be responding in a more modern way. And, and we are doing that as, a, as an industry in general. Um, much to some of the challenges of the business challenges of what about out of the home entertainment and why are we changing all the windows and why are we changing all the business dynamics? Well, we're changing it because there's a need and there's a demand and we're modernizing again, right? And, and it doesn't mean the, the, the things of the past will go away, but they will be altered uh, from this and, and never see the same chemistry that we had before the pandemic. It's something, things, things are changing very dramatically. Yes, absolutely. I think we all look forward to a time when we can return to some level of normality again. Another impact mm -hmm. of the pandemic has arguably been the increased pace of change in the transition to digital of the theatrical business. Studios have shortened windows. Warner Media controversially announced they will go straight yes, to their streaming service, HBO Max, alongside theatrical release. How do you see this affecting the production of movies if audiences will not necessarily be viewing premiering titles on the big screen. Yeah, I got into an interesting discussion yesterday about this, which I thought was sort of an interesting take on it, because there's so much like very obvious comments I could give about this, right, that have been well-defined and well-discussed. But I think an interesting perspective on this is that over this past couple of generations, we've put much more reliance on the opening weekend of a movie, on the, the box office numbers of the first like few minutes of a movie's life in public. Um, and this incredible attention to like, you know, one piece of that media sphere on um, Rotten Tomatoes, right? Like what was its number on Rotten Tomatoes? And I think what it has done is it has caused the industry to react and constrict on taking risks. And, and finding content for different voices and different approaches and big theatrical entertainment started to like find its sweet spot in a fairly safe place, right? Where they knew the chemistry and they knew the formula of what would get people out of their home. And we know statistically, certainly in the United States, probably in the UK, similar, people don't go to the movies all that much even before the pandemic. They go four or five times a year. So you have to 
create this eventized structure around going to a movie unless you are sort of in that subgroup of like retired people or people that go to film festivals or real cinephiles like me and maybe you that really love the movie experience, right? It's just become less and less um, important in the, in the daily life of dealing with their, their tech life and, and everything in it. Um, so we end up getting a lot of sort of like these big budget action, you know, superhero and comic book stuff movies, which is fine. And I like them just as much as everybody else, but wouldn't it be nice to have some different voices in the, in the theatrical experience um, that can be important. Um, but I think, it, you know, from a perspective, it's interesting to kind of look at making content that can catch a slow burn and can find an audience over time and become a hit um, in really interesting ways that don't have to relate to like applying this formula and this marketing equation and and knowing that this will probably work and sometimes it doesn't work even when you put all that money against it um, but you know there are interesting things now streaming and OTT and you know all the all the vods have certainly presented a use case for different kinds of content but the joy and wonder of gathering together to see something um, and putting maybe a little less pressure on a movie to need to be economically successful instantly before it just gets pulled from existence and then goes into that other world. Um, maybe we're entering a new renaissance of that. And I think maybe that's going to be better for our industry. Um, so again, I tend to be oddly optimistic about stuff that people don't often think about. So. Ted, that is a wonderfully positive perspective to have, that this huge change, the restructuring of a windowing system that's been in place for decades, is actually going to enable more variation in the type of content that is produced. Yeah. I was thinking, like, when I was talking to a bunch of students last night, and I was talking about, oddly enough, the, the success of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as an example of, like, you know, this movie that came out that defined all genres and it was musical and it was horror and it was weird. And it was like a box office failure, of course, right? When it first came out. But in this strange way, it sort of found this lore and love. And over time, it became this extraordinarily part of the cinema experience and the going to the cinema experience that over time has defined new economics for cinema, right? For like going to the cinema. And that's, uh, I, yes, arguably a bit of an outlier, but there's lots of examples of movies that have become cult hits and genres that have developed that just wouldn't find an instant like large audience, nor would they market it that way. Um, so I, I, I just hope that there's a new refined uh, flourishing of new kinds of content for different kinds of audiences that don't need to like make all its money back within in a nanosecond. That's that's kind of my hope. Another trend related to what we've just been discussing is the increase in content being distributed to studio-owned D2C services. And Viacom CBS will continue to be a big part of this trend when you supersize your SVOD service and launch Paramount Plus on the 4th of March. Does this D2C landscape and changing consumer viewing behavior impact the way you create content? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you asked that because my, my perspective on this will be less of an insider perspective and more of someone that's just been in the media world because my work, as I talked about at the beginning, tends to be um, looking way out into like moving the pieces on the chessboard quite a bit more um, than the, the here and now, than, than what's current, right? 
but I certainly have a, an awareness and, and theses around this direct connection to the consumer. Um, it's, it becomes more and more important. And I think if you look historically at Viacom CBS as an entity, they've actually always had that DNA and they're one of the leaders in this sort of direct brand to the consumer, right? Um, and, and albeit that they would use a layer because, uh, you know, X amount of years ago, the layer was, was cable and then the layer was satellite and now the labor is, uh, the, the, the layer is, you know, using uh, some form of the internet to distribute content uh, directly. Uh, but we have a long history of success at connecting the brand to the customer with across all of these different brands, Paramount on the movie side, MTV on the music side, and the reality show side, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon on the, the kids side, and then, you know, most recently, like Awesomeness TV on the youth brand side. And um, we, uh, a couple years ago, acquired VidCon, which is the YouTube conference that, like, you know, happens in the real world and now is happening virtually. Um, so we make plays with this understanding of the mesh of how consumers want to engage with us and vice versa. Um, and most recently and very successfully, uh, we acquired a company called Pluto, which gives us this sort of like infinite real estate to work with our customers on the kind of viewing experience they want in an ad supported model, right? So, so we're learning and we continue to get better at it. And it's actually kind of one of the things I find so enjoyable about working with my colleagues on the Viacom CBS side and the Paramount side is while my job is to focus on future platforms and future use cases and all these things that we talk about, you have to learn from where we are today to know where you're going to go tomorrow, right? And, and you have to be able to be sort of respectful, but also challenging. Like my, my job is to shake it up a little bit, to kind of ask why. Like if we're doing this now and uh, why aren't we getting more ahead of the game um, and how do we function at least part of our company like a true sort of startup organization within this big organization, taking real risks, understanding how to explore, understanding how to learn and understanding to find uh, and define what does a hit piece of content look like X amount of years in the future when we're using different devices in different ways, right? And we can also learn from the past at small companies that innovated on this pathway to this universally connected world that was different than delivering content through a, through a cable provider, right? So it's, um, it's, it's certainly interesting. My job is very interesting. It absolutely is. Can we talk, Ted, about a company that did try yeah. to innovate and failed? I'm, of course, talking about Quibi, the much-anticipated mm. short-form video service aimed at mobile phones. It ceased to exist, of course, just a few months after launch. Right. Do you think the creators now will be more apprehensive to develop content that is not just for TVs and other big screens? Yeah, so there's, there's an interesting perspective on that, right? We can look at what actually failed with Quibi and what didn't get there and what may not have failed is that Roku made a deal to pick up a lot of their content. And maybe it has a second life that might be a little more organic, a little less um, you know, press on the gas, sort of try and bring something into reality and give it a little more time to evolve content. I mean, I think th that this could be a whole nother hour discussion of, of analyzing why Quibi didn't work in the time frame and in some of the, the pre-constricted limitations 
but but I'll give you one little sector of this point of view. Um, and I touched on this before. Part of finding audience participation and audience engagement is you cannot just force it down their throats. You cannot just say, we've got all this money, we've got all this power, and we're going to try and like bring something into existence that's going to change your behavioral patterns. Um, there was you know, a predictive nature about, well, people use their phones a lot and they want short form content and they want it to be not just YouTube's type stuff. But what's interesting is YouTube was already a very vast treasure of lots of different layers of content from really high end to low end to medium to, to everything. It's the world's school play and it's the world's like, you know, delivering every kind of content on the planet, right? Um, and it was organic. It didn't start out with the aspirations of we're going to be everybody's like place to watch everything under the sun. It started out with a kid at the zoo. I don't know if you've ever seen the first YouTube video, but you can find it if you search for it. And it's, it's so like modest and so just, you know, these kids kind of playing around with the idea of like, wouldn't it be fun to just post videos of like all this stuff on this repository? So it had a very organic starting point. It wasn't like these really smart people trying to make a business right away. Um, it, had a, it had a burn, right? It, it's a slow fuse that kind of snakes around and moves in different places where I believe the, the challenge that Quibi had was with all this investment they raised and all these really smart executives and all these smart people, they thought they could sort of force it into existence and start to change the behavioral patterns. But one thing I noticed is like that kind of content um, felt like it needed to just be more flexible. Like I want to watch it where and when I want to watch it. I don't want to watch it only on my phone in this like vertical flip back and forth format. If I happen to be in front of a very large computer screen, AKA my television, which is a very large computer screen now, that's all it is. Um, maybe I want to watch it more traditionally or maybe I want to stop start that content. You know, like they would build these long form things but they would sort of constrict them and say they're going to be chopped up into 10 minute chunks when I have the ability to chop them up into any time frame chunk I want, right? Because I have power as a user. So they, in some ways, kind of reduced the power of the user and sort of said, this is how we're delivering it. And this is our version. And users don't react well to that. <laughs> you know, the, the, the customer, the consumer wants choice and wants flexibility. And I think if they had been a little more thoughtful about that and a little more exploration oriented, they would have found different success points. And again, you know, maybe Roku is the savior of some of that great content and, you know, it'll find something that we won't have to call the whole thing a failure, which is kind of interesting, but it relates to my world very specifically as I explore new content horizons. I don't want to force this down anybody's throat. I don't want to like say, you must pay attention to this. I want you to look at it in a way that we believe we're going to build really interesting things and we're going to explore different veins of content and different ideations of content and new devices and how they intersect. And we're going to work with these large tech partners, which I do every day. And hopefully we'll find our way to extraordinarily unique, valid consumer engagement that can then open and blossom into other people. And we, we refer to it, you know, these days in the, the world of, of internet memes going viral, right? And, and it, things need to go viral to be important now. And that's the authentic like nature of so much choice and so much flexibility in the media sphere is it's got to find its own way to get there, right? Um, and like, you can look at the flavor of the moment TikTok 
was Vine, if you remember what Vine was back in the day, and Vine had its moment of authenticity, somehow lost it along the way, TikTok picked up on it and has somehow found this new hotness around this, right? And it's starting to become something. Will it last forever? I doubt it. I think there'll be something, there'll be a new modification of that with a new brand and a new touch point. But when, you know, when the, the guy is drinking the cranberry juice on the skateboard, it suddenly enters a whole new media sphere of like more and more people that was only like a certain segment of like teenagers that would play with TikTok. And then it just broadened because it had a viral moment. It didn't have a marketed paid for moment, right? And then the advertisers and the marketers can hop on the bandwagon because it is so authentic. And I think like they, they bought the guy a truck and gave him like a lifetime supply of cranberry juice and the whole thing. And that's a really interesting story, right? And, and we get those stories on the Viacom side all the time. Like, cause we've been in this business so long that like you look at a, a, an IP like SpongeBob, right? Didn't start out as like this, like incredibly like large universe of how successful it was. It just started out as like, this fun little kid show with a really smart person that came from like the marine biology world. And like, it, it just kind of found its life, right? And then it kept exploding and, and, and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more important to the, to the age these days where we make, you know, big budget feature films around it. And we have a new spinoff called Camp Coral. And there's all kinds of cool stuff with it, but it was organic. You know, I guess that's my point, right? And that's why Quibi didn't work is they forgot to be organic. That's my end, that's my end statement on that. Thanks, Ted. I think the concept of organic growth is is mm. really interesting and yeah. we will certainly be watching very closely to see how the content performs on Roku. So we first met Ted when we were discussing the future of entertainment in yes. cars. The number of cars with connectivity is rising rapidly. I'm sure our listeners would like to understand your position on this. Is video entertainment in our cars going to take off? And what do you think these experiences will be like? Sure. Yeah, and, and, and the best way to describe this is, of course, audio entertainment in a car has taken off for many, many generations. We listen to radio, and now we listen to podcasts, and we listen to all kinds of media. Likely, lots of people that listen to this will listen to it while they're driving in their car when we get to start to drive our cars again, post-pandemic, right, on a, on a regular basis. Um, so that's the broad sort of understanding of, yes, the car is a media device, largely a um, an audio media device so far. Um, with the current technology in cars, with larger and larger and more sophisticated video screens in a car as the dashboard, right? Um, you get to a more and more sophisticated place where you can not just look at the A side, you can look at the AV side of entertainment in car. Um, today, we're sort of at the baby step because most people still drive their car themselves. Um, they have to be engaged in the driving activity, right? They have to pay attention, put their hands on the wheel. So we still need to live in the audio world primarily. But what is happening is that uh, the electric electrification of cars and the sophistication of cars is getting more and more refined and more and more mainstream. And now there are a number of brands of cars that offer either partial or total self-driving capabilities. I drive a Tesla, which is probably among the most advanced in this stage. So my car already, if I want it to, drives itself. Um, is it at a stage yet where I would be willing to just watch 
like, you know, Paramount Plus on my Tesla screen while I'm driving? Not quite yet. You still have to may, may pay attention even though the car is driving itself. Um, but over time, again, along this 10-year curve, we're going to see more and more sophistication, more and more reliance on technology as cars remove the human equation and the human danger from their their life um, and ultimately prove statistically actually safer when you're not driving the car yourself by a long shot, then the car has a whole new life. The car literally becomes an entertainment platform, just like today's mass transit airplanes, right, for long haul trips, uh, have become an entertainment platform. Everyone has a screen inside the seat. And now modern planes are just realizing, well, everyone carries a TV with them, a laptop, an iPad, a phone, whatever. So we don't even have to spend the money to put the TVs on. The, the We just give them connectivity and essentially a streaming service in the plane. That same metaphor is going to move to the mass, much larger market of automotive transport. And at some point you will see and you will feel comfortable watching material on the, the, the windshield screen in an augmented version or on a physical screen in the center of the car. Um, and already these days, when I do charging stops on long road trips, um, I will watch some sort of media or play a game or do something on my screen in the car. Um, and like, it's already happening. And, and people are like, well, it's not all that viable. But if you think about like, moms and dads around the world that are dropping their kids off for soccer or picking them up for school and you know in the in the normal post-pandemic world again you have these little 15 20 minute moments of time and yes you could take out your phone and scroll around and look at texts and look at tiktok and 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 you know facetime and what and, and facebook and whatever but having this like 15 inch screen in your car that's kind of like a laptop size screen uh and just pushing one button and launching you know the latest Paramount movie, the latest Viacom TV show, and watching that as an option is a real thing. Like I'm already doing that, right? Because from time to time, I stop for 15, 20 minutes, charge up my car. And yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll uh, answer my emails and look at text, but other times I want to watch a TV show. So I'll watch, you know, whatever, whatever I want to watch. That's a real thing. It's going to happen. And it's, it's, this is one of the things I get to do is test this stuff before it kind of hits the mainstream. It's really exciting and it's an area that we are closely tracking. We certainly see that there is an opportunity for the content experience to be tailored to elements specific to the car environment. For example, when EVs need to pull over to charge or content recommended based on journey duration. So super yeah. excited to continue working in this space. The pandemic, Ted, has increased the cost of production, and I've seen this to be anywhere from adding 5 to 25% to the budget. How has production had to change, and are there new technologies and production methods coming that might help us reduce these costs? Yeah. So there's a, so yes, I'm, so I'm deeply involved in those kinds of initiatives at the studio and at our larger company. Um, a lot of it relates to what we call virtual production in some fashion. Um, and that uh, can often mean using what we call a, a LED wall, like a giant video screen as a backdrop, as a dynamic backdrop um, to essentially fake going on location and it works remarkably well and we're doing it on all the other studios are doing it on various projects um it it today defines itself by a certain budget level because it's still somewhat exotic and expensive to do this um, we can find cost savings and cost efficiencies at a certain level of production because when you go out on a on a 
a big job and you go out on location, you're rolling a whole bunch of trucks, a whole bunch of personnel, a whole bunch of travel costs, a whole bunch of remote food setup and, and you know, infrastructure costs um, and, you know, power with generators and big lights and all this stuff. Um, that is one obviously very, you know, important part of production. Uh, and we're starting to figure out that economically we can send crews out to essentially capture all those backgrounds uh, ahead of time or build them um, artificially inside a game engine, but they look photorealistic so that we didn't even have to go to the location to shoot it. Um, and then it's dynamic and we can essentially keep sunset forever, or we can like, you know, keep a, a certain lighting condition forever where in the real world and you have no lawnmowers, you have no planes flying by, you have no power lines that you have to rotoscope out later. There's all kinds of advantages to that, right? But they're still somewhat costly and, and you have to look at it as a, as a long-term expense that amortizes over time. Uh, and I was also sort of making the argument that um, when you get under a certain budget threshold with the new cameras and the new technology and the ability to shoot things with smaller and smaller crews and in more intimate ways, there'll be times when it'll actually just make more sense to go out in real locations once it's safe again um, and just not have to roll these huge infrastructures of like move, moving cities to do production. And a lot of directors that are very inspirational to me like to work that way, like to work in this very organic, small way for some or part of their, their movie or their TV show. So that's another trend that I think technology is, gets a little left out of the conversation is technology has allowed us with the, the cameras, I was part, partially responsible for bringing one of those cameras into the world, um, that are really small size, really nimble. Audio systems are very, very small and nimble right now. And, you know, we can capture this sort of like realistic style of cinema without needing all of this infrastructure. Um, and that's an important part of, of like the media sphere as well. Um, so you kind of get like one side of it is this big technology play where we use it to save money at a certain level. And then the other side of it is how do we make content with smaller and smaller, more intimate crews. And, you know, like the, the UGC of the world has taught us that people um, really like authenticity in various ways. Uh, and I think, you know, like if I look at the, the, the media side on the, on the news and topical like daily stuff of the CBS part of our world, and we look at all the other broadcasters getting more and more comfortable with just people being on a webcam and web audio. And that, is acceptable as broadcast standard today, that would be a non-starter a generation ago. Like, no, no, like you can't just stick somebody on that's going to be like dropping frames occasionally and their lights all weird and they're just at this low res kind of web thing and they're looking in the wrong place because they're, you know, like that, that was like no way. And now it's just completely fine. Like everybody's fine with it because it's authentic, because it's real. Like you, you have to do it because they're in their house. They're not coming to the studio now. Um, and it's become a new part of our authenticity, right? That we accept this sort of webcam um, experiment as now broadcast media, which is, you know, like the late night talk show shows do this now. And it's like, boy, it sure would be great if I could hear them a little better and see them a little better sometimes, but it's okay because it's a pandemic and we're dealing with it. And this is how we deal with it, right? So there's media often reflects our society, right? And our society's needs and our society's changes. And we're seeing it both from a technological side that essentially everybody on the planet can be uh, on TV. Like you and I are on TV right now on a, on a Zoom thing. You're going to use the audio for the podcast, but we're effectively on TV, right? 
couple generations ago, it was really hard to be on TV. Like it costs a lot of money and, and you had to go to a studio with big cameras and everything was really professional. These days we've just democratized being on TV to the point, of course, you know, of course, YouTube is a giant thing because everybody can be on TV, right? So these are sort of the trends that I study and think about. So it sounds like then in many ways, the pandemic has actually accelerated the requirements to experiment and take up new technologies that were coming, but may not yes. have been deployed so quickly. And we just need to find a cost-effective way to use them. I, I would 100% agree with that. And and the, the level of people's comfort with something that's not so slick and not so polished um, is becoming more and more the order of the day. It's, it's what's, what's underneath it all, right? And I, and I do think we are certainly seeing um, that people are yearning for like bigger, more professional production. And we're gonna bring a day back to that. And we're obviously a part of that, you know, as a, as a giant media organization, but there's also a learning around, you know, authentic content that, that is meaningful to people, regardless of its quote unquote production value. Ted, this has been a really, really fascinating chat. And I do hope we can catch up next year on Inside Content to see how things are developing. Of course, that's yeah, my pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. Take care, Teb. Bye-bye. Thanks, Haley. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Content from 3Vision. You can always reach out to us at 3vision.tv if you want to learn more. Or if you're a business with ambition in the content world, our consultancy services can help. With decades of combined experience, we know the ins and outs of the industry like nobody else. Catch us next time on Inside Content.